going fission. Australia's Nuclear Technology Podcast. G'day listeners. Today's guest is Simon Turner of SensorWeb, a Brisbane-based business entering life as a startup in 2016. Today, SensorWeb provides complete end-to-end real-time monitoring solutions for any organisation who needs to monitor and report on radiation and x-ray regulatory requirements. Simon Turner, welcome to Going Fishing. Thank you very much, Logan. Great to be here. Glad to have you. I've copied the description of your business from your website, but would you like to further elaborate on SensorWeb's role? Wow, the role. So, um... The big thing that I always wanted in radiation monitoring, having come from working at ANSTO and working at universities, managing radiation and nuclear research projects and also medical isotope production, is that the visibility of radiation monitoring was, was never up to that, that standard that I wanted. Now, now maybe that's a, a bit of an OCD request from someone. Um, but I wanted radiation monitoring to have higher resolution, greater traceability and greater transparency um, so that we could see repeatable measurement. Now, what that means is that once I've been able to create that in SensorWeb, then SensorWeb's role and that type of technology actually then becomes part of the communication piece for understanding from the general community what radiation safety is, what how safe radiation and nuclear facilities actually are, but also reducing that overall compliance cost for businesses, uh, reducing the concern of people that are working inside businesses that use radiation, and reducing the overall liability of a business that works in ionising radiation, nuclear, or even medical x-rays. Because there's a risk there with previous monitoring technologies that was delayed, there was an, a greater potential that events or an unplanned events and exposures could happen without them being picked up for up to three or six months. But by increasing resolution, what that now means is that a business like SensorWeb and SensorWeb Systems actually reduces the risk, so increases safety increases environmental safety and has an opportunity to provide that transparent data to communities to create better assurance for communities around radiation facilities, thus gaining greater support. So the role really is assurance. That's that's the game. That's And that's the whole aim that we're trying to do with SensorWeb is provide assurance to companies and assurance to the entire community that we live and work in. Very good. Look, I want to come back to that and talk about that a bit more. But before we do, um, can you tell us a little bit about your education and where your career started? So, um, leaving high school, I was going to be a musician and was not allowed to pursue um, musician with full support from the family as I did an engineering or science subject. (laughs) I pretty much figured that being MacGyver was the best thing that you could be. Yep, so, very good. Uh, so I jumped into a physics um, degree. My family prior to that, uh, so through high school, I'd actually done a fair amount of work in my family's business. My family is in clean coal. So if you look yep. back at uh, through the 80s and 90s, there was an Australian company called Senfuel or Sen Technologies. 
that's actually my family's business. Okay. And so we're looking at clean coal energy and making that uh, a viable, cleaner, repeatable source in Australia, which, of course, it never took off because people inherently see coal as dirty. Um, while I was going through university studying physics, I got dragged across into doing medical physics because there was a lecturer that uh, quite liked the way that I would debate um, certain points about uh, radiation. Um, and before I could finish university, he'd also found me a position working um, at the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, so Lucas Heights at the reactor, which that really is the, the start of me looking at, I guess, nuclear radiation, radiation monitoring, and the importance of all uh, of those items in a completely different light. So I actually pulled myself out of the medical radiation physics degree to focus more on uh, environmental radiation safety and the measurements of radiation and nuclear safety. From what you've told me, SensorWeb, there, wasn't, there hasn't been anything quite like it in the radiation detection space. It's very much trying to provide a lot more real-time information and innovation in this in this particular area in this particular field. Um, is that sort of how the how the business was conceived? Or uh, I, I wish I was that proactive in trying to design a business and looking for a problem. Yeah, uh, gotcha. that's that's not the reality of it. The, the reality of it is I'm Walk an end user. Walk us down that line. Walk us down that lane. <laughs> Yeah, so as an end user, as a, um, I, I walked around for 12 years with a handheld radiation monitor in my hand. This is at Ansto. At, at Ansto, at Lucas yep. Heights. Um, now, what I say, <laughs> I say I can, I'm pretty much the best at what I do once. Okay. So when, when there's a radiation problem, when there's a survey that needs to be created, um, I think that what I do the first time is world's best practice, and this is human nature. Um, the first time we do it, we, we're totally diligent. We focus on every little thing. We look at the three-dimensional aspects of radiation safety, where the radiation can be coming from. We, look at, we make sure we've got the right instrument. We create a, a repeatable process to continue to monitor this. But when you have to do that two, three times a week, 52 weeks a year, for the rest of your life, um, whether you mean to or not, human nature means that corners get cut. I so understand what you're talking about. I've, I recognise myself uh, doing that exactly what you under exactly what you've described there. Yep, ab absolutely. So um, to put something in a, in a very similar fashion, uh, back 200 years ago. Uh, well, 250 years ago now, when Captain Cook was heading to Australia or looking for Van Diemen's Land, um, he would have, you know, Bob, his mate out the back, would throw a rope into the water and would count the knots going through his hands. And that's how fast we're going. We're going 15 knots. Um, how often did they do that? They'd do it once every couple of hours or when the wind shifted or changed. So their understanding of their velocity was, okay, maybe we travelled for eight to ten knots for 15 hours. Now, jump to 2022, um, all of us take for granted the speedometer that we've got in front of us in the car. It's a real-time readout. It's a real-time readout. 
And it's <laughs> then when we get compliance on side, it's a real-time readout that's expected that you're so familiar with that that if you're one or two kilometres above that, particularly in a 40 zone, you're paying a $400 to $500 fine and potentially getting your licence taken off you or potentially getting your car taken off you. Gotcha. So, so not only has the expectation of safety increased with technology and information resolution and the expectation of us knowing that information resolution, um, but compliance has also kept up and been, almost been ahead of that technology change. So it's a bit like the fact that you now are able to measure X output so much better, it is now expected from a compliance issue that you, like the compliance issue follows with the expectation of how much better you can follow uh, or measure that output. And that's how the regulation gets written around it. Absolutely. The regulation gets written to what is deemed to be reasonable. And I'm, I'm sure many people that have been interviewed um, by you previously may have said something called a LARA, so as low as reasonably achievable. Um, but it's, it's the catch cry for my life. Yeah, um, I can my, imagine. My 14-year-old um, spits it out. Like, it's, it's almost like an automatic answer when we're talking about Wi-Fi usage and devices. And look, look, I don't want to get into the RF conversation tonight, <laughs> but... As low as reasonably achievable is, is the approach that we take to Wi-Fi usage, to mobile usage, um, and it, it has to be the catch cry that starts um, how people think about improving their radiation safety aspects. Now, um, going back to the speedo thing, we, we in the nuclear and radiation space, the majority of compliance in Australia is done through film badges, right? Film badges, yep. TLDs thermolucent decimeters, optical stimulant luminescent devices, things that are sent out into the world from a reading location, they're shipped out, they're given to someone, that person wears them for one month, one week, three months, six months, 12 months, and then at the end of the six, 12, whatever period, they're shipped back. So we've got a, uh, an issue there of error in the transport, got a time delay and you've got a time delay in receiving that data um, does that mean that we're going to miss potential events no you won't miss potential events you'll see an increase in radiation but a sharp event that might be a peak or might only last for two weeks or might only last during um, say a process in a facility that makes medical isotopes um, if they're always doing iodine-131 and molybdenum-99, maybe there's another product that they only make twice a year, such as, I don't know, say chromium-51 or something like that, uh, a, a less used isotope. Now, if they only do that once a year and the badge is averaging or picks up the radiation across that entire year, that bigger peak of that one product, if there is one or if there's a problem with that product, in the manufacturing procedure, you're not going to see that potential issue. The resolution of the sampling method isn't tight enough to pick no. that up or to pick up the different the different isotopes you're monitoring. A absolutely. Um, right. The same, the same is with if you've got a person going into those locations and doing monitoring in those spaces, 
say once a week, once a month. It's it means that if there's something big and it's ongoing and it's going to create an environmental issue or it's going to um, give exposure to many people or you, it will get picked up. But it may get picked up a little bit too late for those working in that environment or, say, the first or second transport. So this... the, the, the delay in monitoring... Um, creates its own potential issue. This sounds like, uh, and because I've been working on construction sites for most of my career, and you have mm. your safety officers and your safety crew, you know, especially on the larger jobs, you know, with your tier ones and whatnot, and they will talk about, uh, is it, it leading indicators and trailing indicators, and the leading indicators mm. are the good ones because they can identify issues before something happens and the trailing indicators are good as well but they're after something happens they are reactive or following trailing edge reactors are reactive or things you can react to not be proactive acting on and it sounds like what you're describing here is that these dosimeters and the traditional way of doing it has been looking at trailing indicators absolutely absolutely uh, or point in time measurement which might be before or after and just miss a small thing. The other thing is you miss the minutia of trends. You, you might come back and see something and it's only 0.5 and yesterday it was 0.4 and the expectation is, hey, it's going to be 0.4 again. Um, so just saying random small numbers. Yeah. Um, and the human brain might go, eh, that's not much change. Um, but if it's a digital trend and you've been the last 24 hours and you're seeing uh, a graph that's showing an inclination upwards instead of just a, a random number of ups and downs, which, you know, the radiation monitoring is its very nature, the potential of measurement, the potential of detecting energy. Um, so there is variance. Um, so that variance is often expected in looking at radiation instrumentation. But once it becomes a higher resolution, that variance, you can see a trend, a trend in the variance. And that is the first indicator that potentially something's going wrong. Um, so I like to think that what we've done is that we've created that ongoing speedo for radiation. So rather than um, the entire community and the entire industry of radiation functioning as though they're waiting for speeding tickets at the end of six to 12 months, which in reality is how we're currently functioning, we're giving the industry a speed a speedometer, which means that rather than waiting you know, 18 months to do assessments and improvements on their procedures and systems, they can immediately see if there's something that's changed or something's not working or maybe they need to do a shift of people in a particular project. It means that that project can happen faster with less review beforehand because you can actually see the change in radiation levels, not just in the area of interest, but in the surrounding areas, all in real time. Low latency, high resolution, and you've got an AI backing you up that you can actually trust to look at trends and inform you of an unexpected change. So if I could just step it back for a moment for our listeners, because I think we haven't properly identified the step you took from when you were working in Ansto, doing your 
you know, you're, you're walking around with your dosimeter or your, your radiation detector, and when you put sensor web together to address these areas of of uh, these lacking areas, can we can we go back to that that point where you changed over, or can we look at that? So once again, I'd like to take. Um it'd be great if I could take credit for having been proactive and thinking about it and just going, Hey, this is what needs to happen. But that's, that's not how it happened. I, I was lucky enough uh, while working at Ansto to be part of a couple of really important projects. Right. Uh, and those are the things that highlighted these potential improvements that could be made. So initially um, when I first joined Ansto, they were in the process of improving their instrument calibration facility. And that calibration facility at Ansto is easily one of the best in Australia. Um, and, and the guys that run it are great. Uh, so definitely send your instruments to Ansto for calibration. Um, when you say um, instrument calibration, this is for radiation detectors or do they calibrate all sorts of different things? Like what sort of instruments are they calibrating? Yeah, so all ionizing radiation detectors. So uh, yep. um, if, if you want to run back to exactly what I'm talking about, look at the original James Bond movie, Dr. No. Um, that, that's one of the greatest scenes of people running around with Geiger counters. Yep. Um, and, and in reality, radiation monitoring hasn't improved much from the Geiger counter usage. So 1918, <laughs> 1918 is when we did, uh, first developed and invented the Geiger counter. Um, yes, we've got ionization chambers and sodium iodide detectors, and then you've got digital detectors off the back of crystals, such as, uh, you know, um, silicon photomultipliers if you want to go solid state or pin diodes. But the reality is that we're just talking a sensor that needs to be in a field, and that's what the calibration facility provides a, a known field so yep. that we can see what the. You know what? I think I've seen it. It's like a big block of known. Out of radiological output, and that's the like, yeah, it's just a big brick, isn't it? Oh, no, uh, oh. I know that the Queensland um, nuclear services guys have got a really nice, um, really linear activity concrete block, but yeah. at Ansto, it's a fully um, automated plinth that moves backwards and forwards from a number of sources that can be placed into. Um, characterized locations within the facility oh, so it's remembering it, it yeah okay cool it's a it's, it's really quite a high-end facility so from that and looking at the importance of calibration and and of course the variance of you know seven thousand different instruments that i got to witness being calibrated every year wow um yep um so seven thousand a year they calibrate um and there's a, there is variance and the expectation of those instruments is that they are plus or minus this much. Uh, and that plus or minus this much of a handheld or field unit is a, a tighter um, requirement than personal dissymmetry. So personal dissymmetry is allowed to have a greater variance. Uh, I don't want to talk about those numbers now because it's, it's not really in on the story. Yep. Um, but because I spent so much time in that, I got pulled across into another project which was uh, helping develop the nuclear-powered warship monitoring systems. Oh, that wow. Australia deploys every time our American friends rock up with their nuclear-powered rubber duckies. <laughs> Please tell me that they're referred to in industry as nuclear-powered rubber duckies. No, just some really immature people talk to talk about it like that. Um, <laughs> I refuse yeah. to believe it. Uh, so, 
Yeah, so that opportunity meant that I really looked at the um, what was in the market um, and what it took to make what was in the market able to be connected to some way of automating an alert or sending information as to whether a change happened. So we're talking back in 2005, 2006. Um, I know I look young, but yes. <laughs> so 2005 and 2006, it was that project. And um, at that time, it was sending information about every 15 minutes. The only devices we could get were running on Windows ME. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we had to build the case and design our own boutique software in order for all of that to work. Um, okay. So in any other industry, getting real time and sending data um, you know, was being done through PLCs in the 80s and 90s. Yep. But um, for ionizing radiation detection, uh, particularly in a scalable way or GPS triggered, yeah, there's pieces here and there that were for specific purposes like geotagging or, or, or geologically looking for different automations because you're looking for a target material in mining. Um, but those things connect to one computer and then data log. It's not um, thinking about building a system of safety or, or automating that. Um, uh, about, yeah. So after completing that, I was involved in a couple of decommissioning projects. Um, don't need to go into those. But during the decommissioning projects, uh, decommissioning of a reactor and small research reactors is quite interesting. Typhar and Moata, yeah? Yep. Yep, so they're, yep, they're the two, well, one of those is decommissioned, the other one is in cold operation or, or waiting to be decommissioned. Um, while we were doing Mawada, you know, you're digging through concrete to get to a, the centre point and you're also you're trying to get all of the pieces of the reactor to more um, easily handleable pieces. Yep. But the way that you're doing that is you're creating um, dirty energy by using dirty power sources, um, to cut through concrete, so concrete saws, um, cranes and other devices like that. And there was a couple of radiation monitors in that location that weren't connected to anything. Um, and when they, were f when they were in that environment, they were regularly blowing fuses. What was blowing fuses? So the monitors? The monitors themselves were having their fuses blown. Okay. Now, so that doesn't mean that there was a radiation event, but it means that there was a limitation. So this is the first identifying a hole. Uh, and that hole is um, we're putting the world's best practice in. We're putting real-time monitoring in that location that people can see, but it's not connected to anything. It's only localised. So people look up, they see a needle in the right place, you know, which is down at zero. Yep. And they think, hey, I'm safe. Now the power goes out and they look up and guess where the needle is? Bit zero? It's at zero. So when these instruments fail, particularly the analog ones, which I actually prefer analog instruments, uh, when they fail, they fail with the needle. At zero. at zero. So if the fuse blows so, and there's no power running through it, it's at zero, but you might not realise it's actually not measuring anything. Yep. Yeah, so you go, hey, but what about my audible alert? That's gone. I haven't heard an audible alert. Of course you haven't. It's not working. 
Um, so, so that happened a couple of times. Uh, eventually, that was rectified and a UPS system was placed on that device. Now, just but, for the people who might not know, that's an uninterruptible power supply, yes? Absolutely. So Very basically, good. there's a big battery there to make sure that if power goes crazy, um, these devices stay on. But the great thing that a UPS also does is it filters power. Okay. And, and that's that's the big thing that needed to happen in a decommissioning or demolition zone when you've got a whole bunch of big electric motors, such as concrete saws, they create a spike down through the power grid. Right. And, and that is what was causing the fuses to pop. So, oh, okay. Because uh, yeah. if, if I could... Yes, yeah, so basically whenever you start up a, um, a piece of electrical equipment, um, it has a certain power when it's operating, but when you first switch it on, it has that massive spike, and that's pretty much for any piece of large electrical equipment. And this was the thing that was... Uh, that was burning out fuses in the detection systems. Absolutely. Right. Now, um, the, now there's a, there was a system in place. So at the beginning of every shift, the health physics surveyor, so Simon Turner at that point with his health physics surveyor hat on, yep. would go in and we would check the operational status of all instrumentation. So you go in and you go, hey, this instrument's not working. You unplug it, you go down to the storage where, thankfully at Anstow, they're relatively well prepared. So there's some backup instruments in place and the old instrument goes in for repair, um, which it never needed repairing, just needed a new fuse. Back up, plug the new one in and everyone's good to start the next day. Lovely. Yeah. So, um, so no incidents in that, but identifying a problem that could be a potential for allowing an event to occur. So if they're not connected to anything and you don't know when they fail, then you don't know um, when the exposure is going to happen and there's no immediate alert of that exposure happening. You miss out on visibility on, on your record keeping. You can't see if or when an event had occurred. Yeah, but still those devices only work when someone's looking at them. Right. They're not sending their information to someone else. And if you're operating a concrete saw, um, I would prefer that you kept your eyes on that concrete saw, same as a chainsaw. Like how many chainsaw incidents are there a, a, a yeah. week? Power a tools day? do not discriminate between flesh and concrete. Uh, yeah. They just don't. No. It's, yeah. uh, and and they, they will cut both pretty well. Um, so please keep your eyes on your power tools. But, <laughs> but that's why it's really important to have somebody that's there, vigil, looking at the radiation levels and looking at the changes, particularly when you're going into a closed device <laughs> that has been closed for 20 years. Yeah, gotcha. Um, at, at what point is it that that concrete saw gets to the point and starts actually pulling away the shielding and creating a collimated beam? It may, it may be, you know, 20 minutes into the job or it might be 20 days into the job. Right. Um, and, and, you know, sure, you can work out the progress and maybe get it down to a couple of hours um, of demolition work when you're going to get into that space. But um, you're better off having something that's more vigil than a person looking at a number and, and an instrument that is autonomously connected to something. Is this what you developed at the time? Was that tool that could, or that sensor that could 
meet that requirement? So this this is still probably five years before that actually became a realization. Okay. Um, so so looking at the way we were doing things, I could see there needed to be an improvement. So we started. Okay. Being... So this was the point where you'd recognize you'd properly recognize the the gap in capabilities. And, and the gap in te- technology, yeah. So yeah. The, the human capability exists, yep. but there is a capability that humans lack. Um, the most consistent person in the world is not as consistent as a metronome. Gotcha. It's simple machines do simple tasks so much better than us human complex machines. So I went back and continued to do uh, radiation safety um, in in Opal, so mm-hmm. the the open pool reactor and also in the medical isotope production facility. And I started looking at systematic approaches of trying to get that trend data. So creating my own spreadsheets for all of my monitoring data, looking for those trends, graphing those things out. Um, And, you know, what I noticed is you couldn't get a linear trend because every time you go into that space, um, you have a different conversation with a different production staff or QC person and you stand in a slightly different position or say um, I've got two people in that office working under me, one's very tall and one's very short, and that did actually happen. Uh, they've got different length arms, they stand at different heights, they all hold their instruments at slightly different position. So trend analysis is absolutely useless right. when the people are taking the monitoring. Gotcha. But when we fix the location of detection, then we can do trend analysis. And when we increase the resolution, then we see all of the potential variances during that time and it makes trend analysis so much clearer. So shuffle forward, um, I moved up to Queensland because I had an opportunity to actually think about how I might employ um, this increased technology capability at a university and actually build an entire radiation management system based on an improved approach to radiation safety. Uh, so, got a job managing the entire um, radiation safety and radiation research projects there. Sorry, th- where was uh, and one of the first did things I got to do that? was yep, Queensland University of Technology. Okay, gotcha. So, moved up to um, Brisbane, Queensland University of Technology. You're now applying these learnings that you'd learned at um, back at Lucas Heights. Uh, absolutely, and gotcha. because in that environment, there's actually less skill sets in that space. Um, just as much real estate of radiation operations, possibly most of it's slightly lower risk than a reactor, but um, still a lot of items. And because of the lack of feet on the ground and the lack of radiation safety specialists in the space, um, more potential for something to go wrong. Uh, so the by employing real-time radiation monitoring through multiple facilities through there, it simplified my process and also enabled me to rewrite a, uh, a more simple and a more flexible um, set of procedural instruments that become that compliance requirement with the, with the regulator, which at that time I'm dealing with uh, Queensland Health Radiation Health. So I got to work with Queensland Health Radiation Health about the things that they wanted to see in radiation visibility and start looking at how this technology and the potential of this technology could be brought into a space that actually met the requirements of what they're trying to do, which is keep people safe, 
keep radiation projects out of um, the, the local newspaper, the yeah, national newspaper. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it, you know, all joking aside, but, you know, the government job really wants to make sure that their Friday morning tea and Friday lunches are as, as calm as possible, yep. which they can't have if they've got a whole bunch of incidents that they have to be rushing up with or even just um, some near non-compliance issues. Now, when people have don't have the visibility of the radiation environment and then they're nitpicking on, you know, full full stops at the end of sentences in a submission or an annual report, you know that there's a there's a disconnect from reality and um, and operation operations and reality end up not being focused on what the outcome of the radiation project is when everything becomes making sure that the paperwork has has a T crossed properly. Um, and so once we actually put real-time radiation monitoring in, uh, previous radiation compliance things such as personal dissimilars were able to be let go in some of those environments that we could show beyond all doubt that everyone working in that space was not going to breach the public exposure level in, in any year. And before that potential could ever occur, real-time monitoring will see that change and will enable... Uh, radiation protection professional, somebody responsible for the facility to go in and make a change so that that exposure never ever gets close to a public exposure level. So, which is a, so not even a radiation worker level, an environmental radiation amount, which, as you probably know, is about a third of what the natural radiation level is, is what the public exposure level yep. is allowed to be. Yep. So, so we're really talking about no radiation, right? Yeah, and yeah. and that is the level that um, you need to be able to demonstrate clearly. Uh, and, but fair fair enough. Like we don't want unnecessary radiation coming from a facility, whether it's a medical facility, uh, a power facility, or even say a, a small modular mobile reactor. We don't want to see elevated levels of radiation coming out of that. Okay. And. And the current monitoring requirements actually make that a stranglehold for operators. Whereas once you put something in that looks for changes, automatically looks for changes, that makes it simpler. And um, you might think that's impossible, that's not going to work, there's no way you could possibly see that. Um, in one of the facilities, um, not going to say exactly where it was. No, that's fine. But I was using the real-time radiation monitoring as in that facility as the background radiation monitor for all of the other facilities because given the nature of the apparatus that it was monitoring, that apparatus was never going to be able to create um, an exposure level that would escape its enclosure. Right. Right? So, however, yeah. Okay. However... As soon as the instrumentation was put in, there was a, a discrepancy okay. at the beginning and the end of every week, which was never detected when you walked through with a radiation monitor because it was the change was so, so low. Okay, and but, it's coming back to this was the advantage of using the real-time monitoring as opposed to just the personal dosimeter. You were able to pick this up now. Absolutely. Okay. You're, and you could we actually saw the... the 
material or whatever it was moving from one side of the facility to the other. And then once that data was recorded and was able to be reported on, because there was a, a clear trend, it was a very low trend, but it was a clear trend, we were able to identify that the risk was not the apparatus that we needed to be legislated for. Mm. It was all of the samples that were being sent in from clients and research projects that were running through the facility. So soil samples, muck samples, <laughs> that ended up being the high risk. Okay. So from an outsider's perspective, what people thought was the greater radiological risk uh, wasn't and what people were expecting it to be and what people were looking at turned out it wasn't that it actually turned out to be something else and once you'd introduced a new method of measuring for it you were able to identify that absolutely and that then enabled the identification of a um, of that hazard so the incoming material being the hazard so from that radiation monitoring and it sounds simple when you hear it mm. but then the person who received that that package of material from all clients then had another radiation instrument and they just looked at the new at the arrival of the material as it arrived and within a month guess what they avert, they had it they had a near miss oh wow so a package had been sent and because of the trend and identifying the actual risk in that facility, a new procedure was put in place. And that new procedure captured something that would have been a reportable event if it had not been captured early. Oh, right. So the fact that it was a near miss and you captured it as a near miss prevented it from being an incident. Well, so it wasn't even a near miss. The, the what we captured first but yes when this new package came in it was identified as too high to be stored in and where they would normally store those items and um it was just stored behind shielding and that made all the difference it just needed to be identified and monitored earlier in the piece than yeah. what you'd previously been what the previous methodology would have been able to a uh, uh, to detect well, the previous methodology wouldn't have even thought to measure it. Gotcha. All, the, all, all of the safety systems were just letting it go through to the people. Fascinating. And, and so what would have happened is the people in that facility who were forced for compliance reasons, they were forced to wear personal dosimetry. The personal dosimetry would have gone to the regulator. The regulator would have come into the facility and said, why did these three people get this really high dose? They would walk around the facility probably for uh, two weeks and, and find maybe nothing. maybe not figured it out. Not found a single thing. Um, but because three of them, they would know that it was a genuine exposure and they would probably request that all of those instruments in that space would need to have maintenance, but they would not have seen the real cause of that. Gotcha. Wow, so it's been it's been quite a powerful change this uh, this methodology. Absolutely, um, that's so that's one one case, and, and there are multiple research facilities, and I, and I don't even want to point out what type of research facilities that in the last couple of years have had incidents like that, that they have ended up looking for uh, a reason that has caused it, but 
you know, you're still looking at a potential event that might be a one-off or a, or a twice-off or or maybe it was only a process for a week in a in a three-month exposure period. So by the time you go to do a review, maybe you're going back through trying to find something and the item that you might think it is is not it. It was something else that was... It's the difference between investigating a cold case and mm. something that's happened and you're dealing with it there and then. Abs- absolutely. And um, you can't retrospectively reduce somebody's exposure. Yeah. You can't so- retrospectively stop um, active material going down a drain or being emitted from a stack. Gotcha. But you can when you've got real-time monitoring and the systems are in place for trap and delay can all be automated and you completely remove these real, you know, they're really, they can be really small risks and really small potentials of releases. Um, and when we start looking at how we're moving forward and implementing new technologies and new research projects, it's, it's this kind of, scare or fear that people are aware is happening how did that event occur why did that event occur if there's not enough traceable information to show how and why these things have occurred and it's all well we think this and this is the theory for that then people working with um these types of materials start to be concerned about it the people living around the facilities that are using ionising radiation that, that have the um, the title of a nuclear activity, people tend to be afraid of that, and and it just is because they don't have the data, and and that data hasn't been available, and that data isn't available to them. So uh, that's that's really where this assurance piece comes in. Gotcha. So has this point is that is this still prior to sensor web? Or is now have we now got to the point where you've put uh, sensor web together? So we're yes, we're just starting to wiggle into that space where where sensor web is being no, assembled. We're, we're going on that journey. Yes, this is very good. This is great. You, you know, with all of these things, uh, the organisations that I was in at any given time uh, were interested in parts of. Uh, what we're trying to do and parts of the improvements, but uh, the appetite for actually swinging, um, well, use an American phrase, swinging for the fence. Yep. Um, is just was just not there because the development and the requirement in that, um, and, and often we see this in well, in all industries, is that big organizations and big companies that are developing uh, cars or whatever, they don't want to be the first person that employs this new change. Yep. They don't, want to, they don't want to spend the time doing it. And, and potentially they're not the right people to do it anyway because big organizations are really good at having lots of meetings. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, and while having the perspective of lots of people is great, um, there are other ways to have that perspective of lots of people um, than having lots of meetings to plan the next meeting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so there was an opportunity that I got to um, get out of 
Queensland University of Technology. And initially, I wasn't going to push the sense web tech so hard. I was just going to go into compliance um, and providing a, a radiation advisory service, uh, which is what I did. But every time I brought on a new client, the first thing that I saw was the inherent risk I was having to accept and the inherent risk that my client was having to accept in let's get this specialist in to write all of our procedures. So I'd stick around for three weeks and be face-to-face, -face, write their procedures, double-check that those procedures really were going to work. And then, yes, then I'd drive home and have a phone call, say, every three weeks, every two weeks with the um, slowest runner in the group who got identified as the radiation safety officer at, at one of those facilities right. and would say, hey, how's it going? Okay, cool. Um, what have you noticed? Oh, I saw zero point. You know, basically people that aren't overly familiar with radiation instrumentation are handed a device given one to two days of training. So we're talking mining facilities yep. and, and, and some research facilities. Said, figure it uh, out. Figure it out. Yep. And, and here's, here's the minimum requirement training um, and, and now solve the world's problems. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, so my name is on a whole bunch of those things and I'm accepting risk. They're gotcha. accepting risk. How do I reduce my own risk? And, and like, I like data. <laughs> I, I like to be able to see stuff. I like yep. to know, has this worked? Uh, can, can I see that they're doing stuff in that facility? Can I see that they've moved radiation from one location to another? And I couldn't. Yes, I could go through the paperwork and if I was to believe that, you know, so many tons or so many kilos or so many grams of this material had moved from this pit to this processing facility or, or this shielded storage location to this laboratory, to, to this lab and then titrated out and disposed of down the sink all according to the procedures. Yes, I could see the paperwork, but there wasn't that transparent evidence. And often, you know, you get back to it and, and suddenly the, the, the masses and balances don't quite line up. Yep. So, so what's happened? And so it almost seems like, despite the fact that you found better ways to measure radiation in real time, you can't set it... You, you're still falling back into some of these old old problems with people not understanding how the system works and they, um, and, you, and you're falling back into this trying to pick up on the, the, the trailing edge indicators. Well, that's... As I went into um, the consultancy side of things... Uh, you have to employ with the current technology yeah. and the appetite for people in those spaces to put in edge technology um, was actually there the more that I spoke to them. And okay. so, you know, once we get to, um, you know, 20, end of 2017, um, I was able to implement SenseWim in a couple of locations and in some of those, we kicked some really great goals in high-speed commissioning of um, radiation imaging facility, um, as in like really quick, um, was able to show the regulator or that state regulator, here's the install. Look, in real time, they've just turned it on. Wow, okay. And, and, and this is the worst-case scenario. I have placed this monitor in the worst-case exposure scenario. Um, and the regulator could see that. So this opens up that next conversation as to 
what else can we approve? What else can we monitor? So that's where, rather than focusing on the consultancy, I focus more on let's let's really roll SensorWeb out. And about this time is um, where I brought, uh, so I met Darren Oliver. Um, he's the IT side uh, because my coding is just crap. Gotcha. Um, it gets the job done, but it's messy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, no, I, I, I get it. You're you're the radiation health physics guy, but you wanted like an IT monkey to to make it all work on the on on the on the computer side. Well, I wanted more than that. I wanted yeah. to take it from the previous IT systems that have been that have been functional and made reports, but weren't probably as intuitive as they could be. Gotcha. And, and and Darren has a background in fintech and developing um, systems that basically people can use without too much training. They can read. Um, projections, extrapolations out of that um, system simply. And, and that's that's really – I didn't want this to just be another thing that people have to learn. I want people to have zero training, look at it, and know they're safe. You want it to be the iPhone of radiation monitoring. I hate Apple so much, but yeah. Exactly. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yes, it's exactly that. It, it needed to be – so simple and like there are things that I, I really quite appreciate from early Macintosh that uh, why does a mouse have to have more than one button? Let's just give it one button. I, yep. I get that. It's, it's simple. Wh which button do you press? Well, there's one. Yep. Press that button. Um, and, you know, the, the main mouse I use on my computer now has like four buttons plus, yeah. plus two scrolling wheels and something by the thumb and then a DPI adjusting that. But yeah, the key thing is that you were trying to make an interface that was largely intuitive. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think that safety should be something that people need to have large amounts of training to know that they're safe. It should be as simple as that traffic light scenario that we, we come up and, okay, maybe we need to know that green, green is go and that red is stop. Um, and no one knows what to do on yellow anyway. Um, yeah, but but it, it needs to be that it, very simple, and um, people need to be able to look at it and immediately know that they're safe, their friends are safe, and the process that they're doing can continue. But it shouldn't take any cognitive load, so it shouldn't take any processing time or processing energy, so they don't have to take their hands off the power tool. They don't have to take their hands out of a glove box from the high-level research or medical isotope. Or yep. No, it, it should. It just needs to be part of the system, that, and they're not waiting for someone to come and double-check their safety. At all times, they need to be just a quick look and know they're safe or know that the system, if there's a change, is going to send an SMS message, an email to a responsible person or the responsible people, and they'll immediately emerge if anything requires attention. Gotcha. And that more or less brings us up to today with what Sam Abs Absolutely. Um, nice. Okay. So, so, I mean, I had this question. I wanted to ask, you know, how does SensorWeb's approach differ from your competitors? But it almost sounds like you don't really have competitors in a um, in in the typical sense. It almost sounds like this is this is very boutique. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of big players in the radiation management and radiation monitoring um, 
game and, and they've been kicking around for a long time. There's there's two particular big players that have been buying up everyone else. Um, but they really focus on one instrument. Okay. Um, and those that do have connected devices um, have often chosen the wrong technology for the connection. Okay. Uh, and I don't I clearly don't want to go into that, but um, a lot of my focus has been um, on making sure that the data is robust and the data actually gets to a location that it can be utilised immediately with low latency. Um, as, as I said, I started as an end user and I looked at pretty much everything on the market um, and there was a couple of things that were just just great as a single unit, but the second you tried to scale them, they didn't work. Um, and, and they had software development kits that they would provide you to build your own system. Um, and, you know, they would be amazing if you had a team of 50 or, or 20 um, developers to use that software development um, package and build your own boutique monitoring system. But then every time you pull an instrument out, you'd have to build it all from the ground again. You'd have to rebuild your reporting and you just wouldn't have that traceability. And it's really hard when every year our instruments have to go back for calibration. All ionizing radiation instrumentation that's being used needs to go back for calibration every year. So you unplug it and you've immediately destroyed your entire boutique system that you've just spent two years building. You so put it sounds a new exceptionally, exceptionally labour-intensive and at the same time quite a fragile system. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's great if you've got somebody who's full-time got their eyes on it. And, um, you know, there's a, there is a location that I in, did install during this process, this iterative process of getting to where I am now, that I did do that. And I spent a lot of time looking at the faults. And, you know, parts of that system would crash, and then I had uh, two great IT support people, one, one handling the back end, another person who was great with big data. And, and between the three of us, we would work out where it all dropped to pieces. And I would go back into the device and pull all of the um, data back and then repopulate the um, reporting platform with the information that it had lost. And, you know, I was then trying to, having to report on how much time that particular thing had cost me to just do that task. Um, so if you don't have somebody who's willing to keep their eyes on that um, and you don't know that those things are happening, then building that boutique system works amazingly for like two weeks, but then you have to generate another IT ticket to get IT support to come back in and, and fix that next breakage and that next breakage. And uh, I, I don't know how you've gone with IT support in big organisations. I've had to raise a ticket or two in my time, and you know, ideally, you don't want to if you don't have to. Yeah. So, so the, the, there are some great single devices out there, and um, the big thing with it is they're not scalable. It's right. not a scalable system, um, and SensorWeb at its its very core takes multiple types of radiation sensors, um, so um, sodium iodide detectors through to um, ionization chambers. Um, Geiger tubes and pin diodes and can put all of that data on the one chart with like really low processing time. What we focused on is robustness of data and scalability of instrumentation. So focusing on how a whole system approach can actually look 
at radiation exposure and then graphically show that across GPS maps, floor plans, and and numbers and trend maps. If if that's if if that's your if that's your jed to see whole bunches of numbers and spreadsheets, we can give you that. Or we can simplify it and show it in a way that just enables a simple glance to see changes. The great thing about that too means that at the end of every quarter, we can automate the ALARA, so the as low as reasonably achievable reporting. We can look at which which facility was the highest in an organisation, which is now the highest over this quarter. What has the change been? And, and then that can then be reviewed by so the, the reporting is no longer about going back and looking at all the numbers and looking at the changes and the potential exposures, but now looking at what the activities were because you've already got all of that data. So you're now doing meaningful reporting, whereas the really labour-intensive crunching the number stuff was all done, was all done automatically. So to, if I can answer the question in, say, a single sentence, the difference you've had is SensorWeb has been able to innovate in a place to provide flexibility and scalability into a discipline where that just hasn't existed. I would say into a technology type that was previously not offered. Congratulations. Thank you. I've, I think <laughs> I've got great hairs somewhere. Here. So going forward, obviously, um, I imagine, you know, hospitals and uh, uh, and and Lucas Heights are the industries that uh, uh, that benefit or the obvious benefit or the obvious obvious clientele for your service but um, are there other industries that uh, uh, that you that you operate with so mining is a big one border security airport security um, air crew safety yep. uh, clearly um, multiple research facilities basically um, Anywhere there's a radio, radioactive isotope, yep. anywhere there is a radiation apparatus, um, SensorWeb does simplify that scenario. And, and, and it's really great, like, being in this little role and this little niche area in Australia because over the last 12 months, as you know, with AUKUS, with the, with the, the push to look at um, nuclear vessels, nuclear reactor types, um, it's, it's not just in defence. Like mining solutions are really looking at um, deployable power. Yeah, right. So, so, so this scalability place and, and, and where we're, we're looking at how to innovate in safety, innovate in clean power, innovate in portable power, um, everyone keeps thinking, oh, we don't need to get rid of coal and we've got solar and we've got wind. Solar and wind doesn't cater to the power requirements of a portable um, mining facility that has a campaign in a location for eight eight months, five years. And, you know, we're, we're talking about getting rid of power, uh, petrol and diesel from vehicles and only allowed to start putting out uh, electric vehicles. Then what happens with all of these generators? How do all of these facilities that are currently running on big portable gen sets, where they're always trans, you know, they're transporting large amounts of diesel out to these mining facilities for the vehicles, for the power, so that people can keep their their food to survive an entire mining campaign, or even just the wet season up the top end of Australia, Been when there. people are are cut off for large periods of time. Yep. 
solar's not going to cut that. And batteries aren't going to survive in that climate with the current technology. Um, so we've got all these industries that you might not think uh, are driving for alternative power sources that are looking at modular reactor technology very, very closely. And, and there's, um, particularly in the mining space, um, I've introduced a few um, mining innovators and mining planners to organizations overseas that we've been in partnership with. I, I think you might have mentioned earlier that, you know, yes, we've, we've been having some great conversations and some agreements with Copenhagen Atomics. Um, you know, they're doing some great things with thorium reactors. I've, I've been to two of their research facilities and had some good conversations. Love what they're doing. Love how they're pushing the thorium envelope further and further. Really hoping that um, they're supported by the community and they're supported by industry. And we want to see this type of scalable, deployable power. But there's still those things that we need to fight against or we need to educate into the community and into industry about how safe these technologies actually are, how clean these technologies actually are. Because at the moment, like we go right back and we're talking, um, talk back to that analogy about throwing a, a rope over the back and looking at the, counting those numbers of knots as they go through your hands. If we continue to give out radiation safety information like that, the current community thinks that we're lying. They think we have more information and that we're not giving it to them. But if we can show them that radiation assurance data around these facilities in real time, if we can show them the safety and the lack of the environmental impact around, say, national initiatives like the Australian Radiation Waste Association, when we roll that facility out, if we're tracking the amount of radiation that's already there before they start development, and then we show the change due to just moving the earth, because there is a change in radiation background when they start digging in the space. Yep. And then you see that there is no change when they start storing radiation, radioactive material there. There will be no change in the environmental levels. It almost and sounds that, like what you're proposing is something like OpenNEM, which gives you your real-time outlay, but obviously for radiation tracking, that anyone can just log on to and just have a look at it. Absolutely. And, and we've got clients that have opted in for that. Right. As, as they are developing something, they want a community-facing dashboard so that people, so that they can say, hey, have a look. Here's the transparency of this and the safety of the facility that we're running. There is no environmental release. Here is this device that's sitting on our plumbing. Here is this device that's sitting 200 metres away. Um, here is five units that circle our facility showing the environmental background level hasn't changed. The, and it's, so it's not about numbers. It's, it's about clear and transparent data. And... You know, we don't need to create a story about how safe it is. People can actually see how safe it is because we can clearly, transparently and openly give them the environmental information. I'm not suggesting that we give them the uh, information from inside a hot cell um, or any of the 
you know, high, highly controlled, highly secure locations, but that environmental data around that facility, um, people will clearly see that there is natural trends in that information. And, and that gives you a starting point for education. Rather than being on the back foot where our entire industry is always arguing about how safe we are because we're answering a question, we're already commuting communicating to people from an open perspective here is everything we are the safest industry on the planet we're the only people that are continuing to focus on safety in the way that we implement our technology and the way that we develop our procedures no one focuses as highly on safety and redundancy as the nuclear organization or maybe maybe air yep uh, you know, and cats and give us grief even on 500 gram drones. Um, <laughs> yep. But the transparency that we can then provide and, and show that that is true and that is clear that we really are focusing on providing the cleanest, the safest technology that is going to power our world into the future. And, you know, as we move away from gensets and move away from cars, we've got to get that electricity from somewhere. Mm. No, it's really yeah. fascinating, um, that real-time uh, offering, that real-time publicly accessible information on radiation monitoring. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. That's a, that's a really compelling idea. Yeah, and, and right now we're not limited to just an area monitor, you know, um, on the side of a building. We've already done solar-powered installations that are in the middle of nowhere, Um we can do satellite connection, and um, we do wearables, 4G wearables, vehicle-mounted yeah, wearables. So we can track radiation at um, transport as it's moving down the street. So you can we still can... have your dosimeter, but now yep. it's a smart dosimeter. Yep, and um, rather than rather than having to go away every 12 months for calibration, we just send you a new one, and yeah, you send us the old one, and it's immediately on the system. There's no downtime. Now, um, you might think that the transport issue is such a small one, but the medical isotopes are being shipped through packed cities every day, right? Yep. They are, they are on the road. There have been incidents with borehole loggers, so um, a ute travelling down a deserted road to a remote area with a radiation symbol on the back, if that ute rolls over, who's going to approach that ute to pull the guy out? Yeah, gotcha. No one. No one is going to approach that ute with a radiation sign on the back. Yeah, it's not just the tran. Yeah, the other ones where I see all the time is the um, uh, what do they call it? The nu- nuclear density gauges. But it has exactly yep. the same thing. Whenever you're testing compaction in a um, in a road surface. They've got the yep. nuclear density gauge and the same thing. It has a little trefoil on the back of the ute that they carry it in. Not that it's particularly dangerous, but the no. trefoil is still there. Comple- and it's not, it's not an environmental issue. It's not a real exposure issue. What it is is a communication and a perception of risk. Now, though, if one of those vehicles rolls over and it has, let's say, a sensor web device on it, um, we can see it's rolled over because we've got an accelerometry data. Yep. We know exactly where it is because we've got GPS. And we can tell you that 
the containment is still completely intact. Okay. And do we need a regulator to drive out from Brisbane to Dolby to do that? That may or may not have happened sometime in the last 10 years. But the fact is you will have a real-time alert that a rollover has occurred and you can respond remotely to that incident. Yep, and... and, um, the person who is responsible for that vehicle, hopefully it's not the person in the seat, but the people responsible for that vehicle can be immediately notified and may even get a phone call from this little person because I'm, I like to help people. Yep. Um, hey, all looks good. Who is the emergency responder to that event? And, and the first responder might be... Oki Police Station. I guarantee you, Oki Police Station do not have a radiation monitor. Yeah. But if they get a phone call, and that data can also at the same time be sent to, say, the state regulator. Hey, we've had a rollover, but our containment's okay. Um, this person wants to hear from you. Hey, I've already got the monitoring data. Safe to approach. Please get the person out of the vehicle before... He dies from blood loss or yeah. or even dehydration. Yeah. Right? Yeah, God, no, because in any kind of um, vehicle accident like that, so much of it is is response time, is, is dictates the chance of that person's survival. So if that free flow of information is mm-hmm. is rapid and reliable, um, that gives that person the the best the best chance. So so where else? Does this does that transport information become a, a benefit? Transporting nuclear fuel, transporting medical isotopes. What about transporting people out of out of our atmosphere? Actually, seeing what the each cosmic radiation event, uh, what the impact is on the biological radiation exposure levels, and and the significance of those cosmic events. Um, right now. Once again, it's a device that you're looking at, a handheld device, or it's a personal dissimilar, which has larger errors than a handheld device, does detect things, but has that problem that you don't know the actual amount of exposure from that particular event. You've got a bit of involvement with Copenhagen Atomics. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about what what you're doing with those guys and what they're trying to produce? So uh, I won't go into too much detail on the things that I've seen. However, they've uh, shown me their deployable, their plan for the deployable reactor and and the containment vessels that they're looking at for that and the size. And, and it really is a, a small modular deliverable power package. Okay. Which, um, so we're looking at providing what we do, yep. Radi- radiation safety in real time, that remote capability, which when we're talking about lots of modular reactors as opposed to one big facility, that remote and autonomous capability is is going to be a linchpin in so many technologies that we're deploying and leaving. And uh, so looking at how we're going to fit in with that and also at the moment now looking after their research, making sure that their staff are safe, 
making sure that their projects are more than just above board. We're helping them have research projects that are not allowed or would be um, slower to be approved because we've got that transparency of data, because we can show the regulator what's going on there minute to minute. And they, they can ask, oh, how do we know you're doing that? Say, so, well, here, there has been this much radiation has moved from this location to this location. That location is the storage facility. That location is this research type. Very, that's very good. That sounds really exciting. Uh, it, this is why I'm so excited by yeah. um, what they're doing. And I, I know that there's other organisations that are looking at similar technology, uh, but I really like the approach that Copenhagen Atomics are currently doing. Um, I like the fact that I've got visibility over um, some of their facilities, and I like the fact that they're excited by our technology to the point that they want to improve their own procedures. They want to improve the way that they're doing things with our technology, and they're actually pushing my development to meet some of their requirements, particularly in the wearables in, and how they connect so that they're more suited to what the way that they're operating. That must be very, um, that must be very, very rewarding. Yes, it, definitely. Um, that is the that is great feedback when somebody goes, "Wow, I like what you're doing there." Have you considered this? And you go, "Yes," but nobody wanted me to do that. And they go, "Well, will you?" <laughs> yes, well, yes, I will. Nice. Um, Look, that's that's absolutely fascinating. We'll be. I'm very keen to a uh, to 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 follow that and find out where it goes. But um, look, we're coming up on a. Uh, Coming up on a uh, sort of an hour and a uh, bit, an hour and a bit more. Um, look, I'd like to round this out on. Uh, you've got some goats. <laughs> I do have goats. And, Would you like um, to tell us about your goats? Um, yeah. So, uh, as as any pet owner will tell you, they love their pets. They love their animals. Um, my my goats are not just pets. They uh, are actually four legged radiation monitors. Um, Don't tell. So although we've spent the entire time talking about world leading, the future of radiation detection, um, goats provide a really great baseline of classical radiation monitoring. Um, so biological uptake monitoring is, uh, is, is the official phrase. But So my goats um, are on... A, cl a couple of clients' properties, and they uh, walk around and do what goats do, which is basically make noise and eat things. Um, so what's great about that is they're really consistent in the way that they eat things. So when they are eating grass on a facility, uh, the grass is connected to the soil, <laughs> and Correct. the soil on any facility has the potential to show how safe a facility has been. So um, initially the goats were there before any processes started to create a radiological background for that environment. So we have a, we've got real-time radiation monitoring showing the background. Then we've also got our biological uptake modeling with goats. AKA doing, goats, yes. Doing that same monitoring process, creating that same background Right. 
now over a period of time, so every 12 months, every six months, um, the time is not actually determined by me. It's determined by a particular goat called Rambo. <laughs> nice. Uh, as you may be able to tell by the name, Rambo is not a milk producer. Rambo... Uh, is a stud? He is a stud. I and see. And he does his job. And his job is to make sure that several months later, the girl goats, uh, they are Betsy and Joy, um, produce milk. I see. And the only reason they produce milk is because they produce babies. So that milk is then sent away for third-party analysis. Okay. And it is then stored. So not only do we have up-to-date ground sampling data from a trusted historical biological monitoring, we've also got in all of those facilities the trend analysis from all of the ducting and the contamination monitoring around that facility. So it's a really long-winded way of saying, yeah, I use my goats for work. Um, <laughs> but it sounds to me that you've got, it's basically a way that you can, uh, what's the word, calibrate your equipment or at least find and have another way of measuring radiation in an area that you're able to that you're able to measure with your technology, if you will, but you can also check it against the traditional methods of monitoring as well. Yeah, so we're looking at a, a biological verification of, of the real-time monitoring Verification, that's the word I was looking for. Very yeah, yeah. good. So, yeah, super, um, super easy. I, I, um, my wife might disagree about it being easy because uh, we had, as you know, we had two more four-legged radiation monitors born uh, 16 days ago. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, which, which also was great because that means that we got another sample from <laughs> that environment. So uh, a litre of milk gets taken um, from that facility, from the goats that have been eating there exactly the same way as they were the whole time, and then that gets sent away to be monitored. Um, but yes, now we've got to either train, train these two new radiation monitors to be the next generation of radiation monitors. Um, but thankfully, you don't have to train them to eat. No, I imagine they, they, they know how to eat and pretty you don't much have instinctually. To yep, and uh, you don't have to train Rambo to do his job either. No, I'm sure he takes to it with absolute gusto. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, yes, uh, if you see a facility with trefoils around it and a bunch of goats on the property... It's probably, are... probably you've been involved. Absolutely, and um, I I just like it because it's a, it is that backup verification. Um, yes, I can go around and I can pick up pieces from the ground uh, and like take samples from this location, and I can track these locations, and I've done that. But um, you can't hide the data from a goat. <laughs> <laughs> you, nice. The, the goat is absolutely going to do what it does, and um, there's no way to fake that data. Fascinating. Look, this has been an absolutely fantastic, a uh, fantastic discussion. But we're at an hour and twenty now. I think I have to leave it here. It's you know an hour is a good length for a uh, for uh, for any podcast. But um, this has been really great. I'm sure. Eh? I'm sure the listeners are really going to respond to this one. So, um, Simon Turner.
thank you very much for appearing on Going Fishing. No worries, Logan. Thanks for having me, mate. Once again, Going Fishing would like to thank Simon Turner for appearing on the podcast. Additionally, in the show notes will be a link to the SensorWeb website, as well as to Simon's social media, LinkedIn and Twitter. Additionally, there'll be a link to Copenhagen Atomics that Simon mentioned during the interview. This has been Going Fishing, presented by Logan Smith.